0: Hello and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories. I'm Michelle Ford, the SEAC Director, and today I'm joined by Natalie Pearson, who's usually on the other side of the microphone. Natalie, you work in critical heritage studies. What does that actually mean?
0: Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. The study of heritage has traditionally been dominated by... Western, predominantly European, experts in history and archaeology and art history. So, critical heritage studies is trying to go back and rebuild that from the ground up and think about heritage more inclusively, um, with more transparency, more reflexively. So, it's about questioning everything that we understand heritage to be and really interrogating the power relations behind that heritage.
1: Could you give us an example?
0: If you look at the UNESCO World Heritage List, it is very much dominated, at least in the past, it has been very dominated by Western architectural monuments and sites. So there's a predominance of German cathedrals, for example. Critical Heritage Studies is trying to expand what we understand by heritage and So it's more diverse, it's more inclusive, it's looking at other parts of the world, other ways of understanding heritage beyond monuments and sites. It's thinking about heritage as something that is actually intangible, as a process, as something that is constructed rather than something that we can point to.
1: So your research focuses on the underwater heritage. How does that speak to this question of critical heritage studies?
0: Well, I'm really interested in underwater cultural heritage. The ocean is the largest museum in the world. And I feel that with this new approach to critical heritage studies, experts have been looking at terrestrial heritage, they've been looking at intangible heritage, and what I'm interested in doing is introducing the underwater to those considerations as well, because there is so much of humanity's history and the remains of the human past and our engagement with the ocean that we're missing out on by not including underwater cultural heritage in our our considerations.
1: And the thing you've been looking at more specifically is a particular shipwreck, isn't it? The Belitung.
0: That's right. So uh, my research is about this Belitung shipwreck and it's named after an island in Indonesia. It's a really fantastic story. It's a really global story. It's a ninth century shipwreck. It was found off the east coast of Sumatra, sort of in between Java and Borneo and Sumatra in that sort of triangle there. And it actually came from the Middle East. It was a, a ship that had travelled across the Indian Ocean. It sank in what would become Indonesian waters, but it had ninth century Tang Dynasty ceramics on board. So you've got all these global influences coming together on this one shipwreck.
1: Okay, so let's start with its origins. How do we know that it came from the Middle East?
0: We have to assume that it came from the Middle East. We don't Definitely no for sure. There's no shipping register. There's no log that we can look at. We don't even know what this ship was called when it was first sailed. You know, we've given it this name, the Belitung. But we can start to get an idea of where it came from by looking at the way the ship was constructed. And it's quite astonishing that we've been able to determine that, given that it's been lying underwater for over a thousand years. Uh, and if you look at the way the hull is constructed, it's absolutely incredible. It's stitched together using natural fibres, probably coir from coconuts. So there were no nails used in its construction, no iron, nothing like that. It was all sewn together. And these hull construction techniques are something that we do see a lot in the Western Indian Ocean. So using a combination of research about where the timbers came from and how the hull was constructed, we assume that it came from the Middle East, probably somewhere around Oman or Yemen.
1: And the next part of the puzzle is its cargo. Can you tell us a bit more about it?
0: Yeah, its cargo is really spectacular. I don't want to use the word treasure because that's one of the tropes that we come across a lot in shipwrecks that I, I try and avoid, actually. But, of course, there was gold and silver on this this shipwreck. But, actually, the most spectacular element of the cargo was the ceramic cargo. They believe that around 70,000 objects were on the ship when it went down, when it was wrecked. Uh, about 60,000 of those were recovered and almost all of them were ceramics. And of those, most of them were particular type of bowl from Changsha.
1: And in your book, you refer to this as something of a floating IKEA. Where did that metaphor come from?
0: <laughs> I came across this metaphor actually when I was doing a tour of the Asian Civilisations Museum, uh, just as a member of the public. And one of the wonderful docents there described the shipwreck to me as a floating IKEA And I found that a really engaging idea. And I think what she was trying to do with using this reference to Ikea was she was talking about the shipwreck and the mass production techniques that it testified to through these incredible Changsha bowls, over 55,000 of them. Uh, This really does tell us a lot about the capabilities of Chinese kilns in the 9th century and their ability to produce very similar objects for export. And I guess that's where the floating IKEA came from. Of course, it's a lot more sophisticated than that, but it's a great way of getting the public involved in the idea.
1: And where were these bowls headed? Where was the cargo destined for?
0: Oh, that's such a difficult question to answer. We're not sure. We think that uh, some of the cargo may have been destined for Java for further trade before the ship returned to the Middle East. We can't know for sure. Certainly the southerly location of the wreck down near Belitung Island near Palembang suggests that it was not going through the Malacca Strait straight away. It was probably trading with Java and then probably going back to the Middle East. But we do know that there was a Middle East market involved at some point because so many of the ceramics, particularly the green splashed ware, and a lot of the ceramics have lozenges incised on them as well. A lot of these are Middle Eastern motifs and things that would appeal to the Middle Eastern market. So probably Java and then the Middle
1: East. But it didn't make it there, did it? Because it was wrecked. Can you tell us a bit about the salvage?
0: Local fishing communities on Belitung Island first became aware of what they called this reef where jars grew. So they were trying to catch fish and sea cucumbers and trepang, and they kept pulling up bowls, right, and ewers. And so they were aware that there was something down there and there was a precedent for Chinese ceramics in Indonesian waters. So they they were aware of it. And there were a couple of commercial maritime exploration operators on Balitung Island at that time. And they were able to apply for a survey licence and then a salvage licence. And that was legal in Indonesia at the time. So they did that. And the first salvage took place in 1998, quite an incredible time in Indonesian history with Sahato falling from power in May. And then this shipwreck with all these Chinese ceramics being brought to the surface sort of around August. And they had a break for the monsoon uh, and then they recommenced salvage operations again in 1999. So it was a very quick salvage. They were dealing with the weather, they were dealing with the political climate in Indonesia, there were looters around. And so they did recover the objects faster than... You would see in a regular maritime archaeological excavation, so we don't talk about this as an excavation, it was definitely a salvage, they brought the objects to the surface and then the onus was on them to somehow find a way to desalinate them, store them, conserve them and there were thousands and thousands of them.
1: So it was very quick but it was controversial in other ways too, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, so... If we're talking about underwater cultural heritage, it's really important to be aware of the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Cultural Heritage. And you'll note here, I've said that the salvage took place in 1998-99. The convention wasn't introduced until 2001, so it actually wasn't in place when the salvage was done. And actually, Indonesia is still not a signatory to this convention, nor is Australia or America. But there were certainly discussions taking place in the international community at that time in the lead-up to this convention And these discussions which came through in the convention were about banning commercial exploitation of underwater cultural heritage, making sure that it wasn't looted or treasure hunted, and preferencing in-situ preservation as the first option. So in-situ means keeping the hull and the cargo underwater and protected, but of course that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, so it didn't comply with the international community's expectations. This became a problem later, didn't it? Can you tell us about the role of the Smithsonian in the story of the Bleetle?
0: So the Smithsonian controversy brought this shipwreck into the realm of big international controversial exhibitions. After the shipwreck was salvaged and conserved, it was actually conserved in New Zealand, Seabed Explorations, the commercial salvage company, sold it to Singapore for $32 million dollars. And Singapore had to figure out a way to display these incredible objects. And they came up with this idea of an international travelling exhibition called Shipwrecked, Tongue Treasures and Monsoon Winds. So really evocative, beautiful title. It had this gorgeous catalogue. It opened in Singapore at the Art Science Museum. And from there, it was due to travel to Washington to go and display at one of the Asian art galleries as part of the Smithsonian Institution. But just before the exhibition was due to travel to America... This storm of controversy broke out. Somebody has referred to it in an online blog as a storm in a tongue teacup, but actually it was a much bigger storm than that. And what ended up happening is the Smithsonian pulled out four or five months before it was due to open because they were very concerned about the commercial nature of the salvage, even though it was legal in Indonesia. It was nevertheless considered in the eyes of the international community to be unethical and the Smithsonian was very wary of being seen to condone the process by which it had been brought up.
1: But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? It kind of got rehabilitated. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Well, Singapore had this $32 million white elephant on its hands and tens of thousands of objects. They've got 53,000 objects in Singapore. Uh, So they had to find a way to, as you say, rehabilitate the exhibition It took many years to rehabilitate the exhibition. One of the important things that Singapore did was to transfer it from the tourism portfolio to the heritage portfolio. So these were no longer objects about tourism and attracting people to museums. They were recognised as heritage objects and they were permanently installed in a dedicated gallery at the Asian Civilisations Museum right on the riverfront. It's a beautiful display it's there permanently but because they've got so many objects in their collection they can also afford to loan objects through international traveling exhibitions as well and even though the smithsonian pulled out the asian civilizations museum has been able to partner with other organizations including in america the asia society in new york so they did get their american debut they've traveled to canada the netherlands they've just opened in shanghai which is really interesting because the Shanghai Museum was one of the ones that was interested in purchasing the objects in the first place. So they have gone on to have these other lives since the Smithsonian controversy, and I guess that's what I'm really interested in with my research is not just where the objects came from and where the ship came from and and the wrecking event, but how since they're salvaged they've taken on other trajectories, other meanings, and how we've ascribed other types of value to them.
1: Something really strikes me. And that's the absence of Indonesia in your account so far. Where is Indonesia in the story of the Blitung?
0: Indonesia had in place from 1989 to 2010 this domestic legislation that permitted the commercial salvage of shipwrecks in its waters. Quite a few shipwrecks were brought up under that legislation and some of them were split up and sold. Horst Liebner has written an amazing research thesis on what happened to the Turabon shipwreck. There's also the Intan shipwreck. There are very historic, archaeologically important shipwrecks in Indonesian waters. But since 2010, Indonesia introduced a moratorium on commercial salvage in its waters. They're taking steps now to reinvest in their maritime archaeology capability and to do better displays of the objects. So they've opened the Marine Heritage Gallery in Jakarta, for example, and you can go and see some objects from these shipwrecks there. But you're right, Indonesia is quite absent from these discussions, which is a shame because the Balutung shipwrecked in Indonesian waters for a reason because in the 9th century there were important trading networks and exchange networks and seafaring networks and... By talking so much about the Middle East and the Smithsonian controversy and Singapore's purchase of the objects, what does get missed out is the role of Indonesia, both in the 9th century and now in managing its underwater cultural heritage. And that's something I'm really interested in exploring more.
1: So it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of international interest in the management of these kind of objects. So as you said at the beginning, it seems like they're very important. But what do they tell us about those broader political, geopolitical tensions?
0: Well, I think one of the reasons the Balutong Shipwreck has been so interesting from a research perspective is how many different narratives it brings in. So we've mentioned many different places and countries and institutions in this discussion already. And, and to me, it seems like they all want to tell the story of the Belatung from their own perspective in their own way and to appropriate the narratives that they see as important to their national project. So for Singapore, that national project, that national narrative is about Singapore being the lodestone on which Southeast Asian maritime histories turn And when it went on display at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, for example, it was used to tell a more Islamic Muslim story. Um, So there's many different access points to this shipwreck, I suppose. And I think if we're going to tell the story of it and try and expand the way we construct knowledge around it, we need to think about all those different perspectives.
1: So that really brings us full circle back to the critical heritage studies lens. How do you think this story of this particular shipwreck helps people in heritage studies generally better understand the objects they study? Well,
0: this is the big question, isn't it? There's a lot of talk at the moment about China's Belt and Road Initiative and the Silk Road and the maritime equivalent, which is sometimes called the Maritime Silk Road or the Maritime Ceramic Route. And that's something that scholars like Tim Winter have been doing a lot of work on, these geocultural approaches to thinking about heritage. And I think Bringing underwater cultural heritage into those geocultural ways of thinking is really important because it, it tells us that heritage is not just a luxury, it's not an indulgence. What it is, is it's telling us about some of the biggest stories of our times about infrastructure and connection and about power, actually, and about national power and the use of the past in the present.
1: What a great place to end. Thanks so much for your time today, Natalie, and good luck with the next chapter of your research.
0: Thank you, Michelle. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.